I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. I personally was on the Queen Mary crossing from Southampton to New York when this was announced and I went down into the salon on this Sunday morning and everybody on that boat was in the salon praying and crying and I was supposed to do a, a ship's concert and I told the captain I said there's no way I can do a ship's concert with the people in this condition he said it might be the best time in the world to do it and I went on and did that show that night and I opened up with a very broad joke about the woman that was standing on the corner in London with her dress up over her hat. And a fellow said, lady, you're getting your legs all wet. She says, I don't care. My legs are 50 years old, but the hat's brand new. And they laughed at that. They, they seemed to want the broad humor. They wanted something to make them forget what had just happened. As February 1944 got underway, the Soviet Leningrad Front was fighting a heavy ground war against the German 18th Army in Estonia. The battle would last the entire month, with the Soviets eventually winning. French resistance unified under the French forces of the interior. The Germans won the Battle of Cisterna in Italy against the Allied Army. But at that point, four months before the Normandy invasion, the Allies kept pushing into Italy. Meanwhile, the Battle of Admin Box began in the Burma Campaign, with Japanese forces attempting to counterattack an Allied offensive trying to draw Allied reserves from the Central Front in Assam, where the Japanese were preparing their own major offense. On the morning of Saturday, February 5, 1944, at 7 a.m. Eastern Wartime, the NBC World News Roundup signed on from WEAF in New York. Good morning, friends. This is Lloyd Burlingham reminding you of the service offered you by Skelly Oil Company, Skelly Jobbers, Dealers, and your own Skelly Tank Station Man. Alex Dreyer is here with a summary of world news, supplementing his complete reports to you Monday through Friday. I want to talk on the perils of prosperity, and we'll bring you the story of this week's winner of the Skelly Agricultural Achievement Award. Now, Alex Dreyer. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. The Germans, throwing heavy reserves of men and machines at the Allied lines below Rome, have again been smashed back. Four assaults in all, constituting the long-awaited full-scale German counterattack, have snapped under the concentration of Allied power. Our beachhead is now two weeks old, during which time we have advanced an average of about six miles inland. The width of that beachhead is around 20 miles. In that area, just south of the Italian capital, some of the bitterest battles of the Italian campaign are raging. The Germans are determined to make us pay heavily for every yard of advance. The Battle of Italy is to them more than just another campaign. The Nazis look upon our thrust in Italy as the placing of the first Allied nail in Hitler coffin. And they're right. Just 45 miles to the southeast of our beachhead, Anglo-American forces wedged in between mountains are dislodging Nazis from almost every conceivable kind of pillbox and foxhole. But they are being dislodged. Here in this casino area, German resistance is just as bitter farther to the north. There is the definite realization on the part of the German that his fight must be a prolonged one. Emphasizing that German attitude is the fact that Field Marshal Kesselring, Nazi commander in Italy, is in the field with his men. Behind the cellar to cellar to advance, in which the enemy is being dynamited out of fortified buildings, there are the casualties, hitting both sides equally hard. 
We are losing men, and not just a few men. And the deeper we attempt to penetrate Hitler's fortress, irrespective of what side we may elect to attack, we will be unable to escape that mounting toll of dead, missing, and wounded. The Italian campaign is an intensely difficult struggle, this irrespective of the fact that we have the Germans in some respects on the run. We are advancing, but at a relatively stiff price. Since our invasion of Italy, we have taken more than 10,000 German prisoners. Their arrogance is largely gone, but not their belief in Hitler. As the Nazis desperately try to encircle our forces below Rome, they say they've already done so, German units in Russia's Ukraine are waging a losing struggle in their attempt to break out of a Soviet ring of steel. On the date of this broadcast, Allied powers were slowly inching into Western Europe, with the body count mounting, while Soviet forces captured cities in Ukraine. Overnight on February 6th into the 7th, Soviet bombers attacked Helsinki, the heaviest bombing of the Finnish capital since the war began. Meanwhile, a growing border dispute between Poland and Russia caused President Roosevelt to step in, asking Stalin not to allow it to undermine future international cooperation. Roosevelt proposed that the Polish Prime Minister accept the desired territorial changes and then be allowed to alter the makeup of his government without any interference from foreign pressure. With the thought of having created another Stalingrad in the making. Captured German field telegrams reveal that the trapped divisions, asking what to do now, have been told to save their necks, and that is all. Well, the German high command appears to be short on advice. Berlin propagandists, again working overtime, are now telling the German people that there is the prospect of an imminent Allied invasion in the West, and that is why the German army is suffering reverses in the East. The double-talking Nazis are obviously beginning to confuse themselves. The steady rumble of Allied planes overhead is adding measurably to that confusion. Already this morning, large formations of Allied bombers with strong fighter escort shot across the channel. That large force, making its fourth consecutive daylight smash, appears to be on the same scale of those which have blasted Wilhelmshaven and Frankfurt in the past two days. Last night, Britain's mosquitoes were busy at the task of stinging the Germans again. In the Battle of the Marshals in the Central Pacific, our Marines and Army infantrymen have swept up another batch of islets in the Kwajalein Atoll. The end of enemy resistance on Kwajalein Island itself appears to be but a matter of hours. Admiral Nimitz has already instituted a government of occupation for all of the Marshall Islands. This is the first time since the Spanish-American War that American forces alone have seized enemy territory. Here at home, the Senate will meet today, either to provide swift approval or a slow death for the hopes of our fighting forces for a voice in the elections next fall. By the time the fall rolls around, there will be around 11 million persons in uniform. The people in uniform want to vote. Of that, there is no doubt. And if anyone has the right to vote, it is the man or woman shaping our nation's destiny on the fighting fronts of this global struggle. And now... Here's Lloyd Burlingham with the vital news from the farm front. A month ago, I read an article in Country Gentleman titled Perils of Prosperity. Perils of Prosperity. That's something all of us in this farming business can face bravely, I thought. At least we'd like to take the chance. And so I filed what Lloyd Partain had written as something to be concerned about a long time from now, if ever. 
Now I'm not so sure. Wartime needs stretched agricultural production. The U.S. not only had to feed its own civilian and military population, but many of the Allies relied on America's breadbasket. In addition, German U-boats sank hundreds of food-laden ships bound for Britain. Canned fruits and vegetables were rationed starting March 1, 1943. Less canned goods meant less civilian tin use and less strain on the heavily taxed rail and road systems. Even as early as 1941, civilians were encouraged to grow their own produce to supplement their food. These were referred to as victory gardens. The Department of Agriculture produced pamphlets to guide urban and suburban gardeners. Magazines and newspapers published helpful articles, and patriotic posters urged participation. All expenses for living, interest, taxes, everything are subtracted is between five and six billion dollars. In the Pacific Northwest state of Oregon, wartime farm labor shortages led to the creation of the U.S. Crop Corps in 1943. It umbrellaed labor services like the Women's Land Army and the Victory Farm Volunteers. The latter was a group that got parental consent to employ youths aged 11 to 17. Migrant workers from Mexico also helped, made possible thanks to the joint U.S.-Mexican Braquera program. By 1944, farmers could request help from POW laborers held at Oregon Army camps. More than 3,500 prisoners, mostly Germans, worked in Oregon fields. Partain proposes that, so far as it can be managed, this is the time to afford conveniences and improvements for the farm home, also to get set for such future expenses as doctor and hospital bills and college training for the children. He recommends insurance and urges buying war loan bonds. One of the chief perils of our current farm prosperity, as seen by the writer, and a million farmers will agree with him promptly, is that of buying land at too high a price. The article ends there, and it leaves the question, shall I buy a farm now or add to the acres I already own, with an answer which is a question. Before you put money in land, he suggests you figure out the answer to this one. Will this land make good for me when prices on farms are 50% of what they are today? Well, I still prefer the perils of a 1943 net income on farms of $12.5 billion to those of another kind which flooded farm homes when net income was down to $2 billion. But I'm glad to have gone back to Partain's very useful warnings. It is important that we prove ourselves as capable economists in times of prosperity as we have in the past when the going was tough. Well, Lloyd, I think I could face the perils of prosperity and be pretty brave about it. But I've seen the aftermath of such inflation as America's never known. I'm no farm expert, but booming land prices bringing on inflation in agriculture could do a great deal of harm. One of Lloyd Partain's suggestions fits right in with the need to take special care of farm motors and equipment. Buying replacement and repairs where necessary and where possible, and keeping every machine new and old in the best possible condition. That's a good investment of money in any kind of times. This season, there's special advantage to you in using the service offered you by your Skelly tank station man or Skelly jobber. See him for high-quality Skelly gasoline, tractor fuels, kerosene and fortified tagaline heavy-duty motor oils and greases. Skelly Lubrication conserves motors. Your Skell gas dealer has bottled gas in steel cylinders for cooking, heating water, and refrigeration 
beyond the gas mains. Well, more than a century ago, a pioneer set his plow in the virgin Hawkeye soil at, at Iowa City and headed his yoke of oxen north and east toward the Mississippi. His furrow set the course for the old military road angling across the gently rolling prairies to Dubuque. Near where the oxen crossed the Cedar River, a stagecoach stop known as St. Mary's was set up. The traffic flowing along the road these very many years has not changed more in the shift from oxen to today's cars and trucks than as the stagecoach stop became famous as Wayside Farm. Fine shorthorn cattle were bred there. Always a stock farm. You'll find it easiest now by asking in Mount Vernon. That isn't the name, not officially. Milo Walrob is too modest for that. When he does so dignify the 271 acres he rents, the name will likely be Chapel View Farm. For from an east window, you can look across to the old chapel building of Cornell College in Mount Vernon. Milo and Mary Walrob are partners in maintaining the proudest traditions of old St. Mary's. Their helpers are Joan, 10, Mike, 6, and Vincent, 4. Starting from scratch... The Walrobs have built up a substantial farm business so that now, with no other help than 19-year-old George Cadlick, they produce great quantities of food, serve their community well, and do a fine job of living. Crops in 1943 included 90 acres of corn to be stepped up to 170 this year, 15 acres of soybeans, 50 this year, 15 of oats, and 30 of hay. 150 hogs marketed totaled 18 tons of pork, 400 hens provided over 4,500 dozen eggs and 600 birds were sold. 150 head of beef cattle are fed annually. That calls for a lot of work. And Mary Walrob keeps her house, cares for the three youngsters, drives the tractor in rush times, hauls speed with the truck, and keeps the records on the excellent herds of purebred Berkshires and Angus. Berkshires are the Walrob's biggest business. They started with crossbreds using Berkshire boars on Duroc sows. From there, they worked into registered Berkshires, starting with a $200 sow selected most carefully. And now there are Berks all over the place, good ones. The Angus herd is founded on two heifers that Milo Walrob raised as a 4-H clubber. The main cattle project so far is Hereford Feeders. This is a hustling, bustling, go-ahead place where food production in the greatest possible quantities is the thing. Yet there's time for outside interests. Milo Walrob was a 4-H club leader for six years. He works with the Farm Bureau and the Angus and Berkshire Associations and with Mrs. Walrob, is active in the Lisbon Catholic Church. The Walrobs, beside prodigious service on the food front, have helped in bond and scrap metal drives. And now today, in recognition of this very fine record, the Committee of Awards declares Milo Walrob winner of the Skelly Agricultural Achievement Award. Well, Lloyd, I'd like to add my congratulations to those of the committee commending the Walrobs, Milo, Mary, Joan, Mike, and Vincent. And you know, Lloyd, someday I'd like to see Chapel View Farm. Thank you, Alex. I wish you could. I will. That's my home stamping ground. This morning... At the farm, personal representatives of Mr. Skelly will present the Agricultural Achievement Award to Milo Walrob. The award including a $100 war bond, a colorful achievement pennant, a gold lapel pin, 
and a beautiful scroll. Next Saturday at this same time, another W.G. Skelly Agricultural Achievement Award will be made. Meantime, take advantage of the service offered you by your Skelly tank station man. He'd like to be of help to you. He can make your motors last longer and serve you better. He's a good man to know. Listen, Lloyd, you really think you can fix it up for me to see that farm? Well, Alex, I think I can. That's out near where I grew up. I'll be glad to take you to a really good farm. Because that's what I need is a farm. <laughs> well, that's what we'll get you. <laughs> Folks, listen to Alex Dreyer in the next uh, uh, news analysis of day all through this next week, Monday through Friday. This is Lloyd Burlingham saying goodbye now until next Saturday. This is the National Broadcasting Company. <laughs>